All right, this morning we are in the third week of our series, The Summer in the Psalms, and we're going to be in Psalms chapter 10. Now, earlier this week on Monday, I was here in the church working out there in the office area, and a couple local pastors who are friends of mine came over and they decided to work with me. We kind of just worked in the same space and mostly working on our own things, but it's just fun to be with friends when you're doing work. And I don't know if you remember, but on Monday afternoon, we had that crazy thunderstorm uh, because it was really humid, and all of a sudden, there was all this thunder and lightning. And so we're out there working, and all of a sudden, it's just a downpour and thunder really loud and lightning. And my friend Jared Berry, um, who is a pastor and a part of our church, he was here working. And about a minute after the storm started, he received a phone call. And he picked up the phone, and I could kind of tell from his voice that he was talking to his children. He has a little boy, Judah, and a little girl, Charlotte. And he was like uh, very tenderly comforting them. Daddy's safe. Daddy's inside. Daddy's okay. And he got off the phone and he said to me, he goes, I don't know what it is, but every single time there's a thunderstorm and I'm not home, my kids want to call me. The first thing they want to do is, where's dad? Is he okay? Is he, is he somewhere safe? And then I thought, my kids never call me during thunderstorms. Like, <laughs> what kind of love and devotion is this that I don't know of? And uh, we kind of were laughing about it because it's like they don't trust him, apparently, to not be running around with the metal pole in his hand during a <laughs> thunderstorm or something. So they want to make sure that he's inside and that he's safe and he's secure. And uh, I was thinking about that, how as little children want to know where is their dad when it gets a little bit scary outside. And I think the truth is, is that in our lives, we're all like that. When we go through storms of life, we tend to say, God, where, where are you? Where, what are you doing? In the psalm that we're going to look at this morning, verse 1 says this. The psalmist starts with this sort of a question. The psalmist says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Very honest questions. And so this week we're in Psalm 10, and Psalm 10 is a psalm of lament. And last week we were in Psalm 8, which was a psalm of praise. So this is going to kind of be like emotional whiplash from last week to this week, because last week was all praise, and this week is lament. But one of the things we learn, one of the gifts that Psalms gives us is this understanding that the life of the Christian is praise and lament. It's both. And it's not just either or. Sometimes it's both and. Have any of you ever walked through a season where you had things to grieve, but also things to rejoice in? That's sort of life. Always things to be thankful for and always things around us for which we have grief and sorrow. And so praise and lament, the Christian life is both. Now, what is lament? I want to I talk about this this morning. Uh, lament is an expression. It's a, a heart expression of deep regret or grief or sorrow. Uh, one of the commentators defined lament this way. Lament is a persistent cry for salvation to the God who promises to save. In a situation of suffering or sin, in the confident hope that this God hears and responds to cries and acts both now and in the future to make whole. So why do we lament? And the simplest answer as to why we, why we lament as a people is this, because somehow every single one of us knows that things are not the way they were supposed to be. Something's not quite right. A famous author calls it an interior dislocation of the soul. That inside of you, you somehow know, like, this is not the way the world should be. This is not the way my life should have gone. These are not the circumstances that I would have dreamed of and imagined. And so we have this sense of this is not the way it should be, and and it, it never really is. So some of the things that we lament are things like personal pain when we're in pain. 
and sorrow and loss. When we experience shared suffering, suffering, whether it's as a family or church or community or a nation, the evil acts of other people, physical sickness and disease in ourselves and in others causes us to lament. Social injustices, things happening around the world that just aren't right, broken relationships, a decaying world. And so because these are things that are always a part of our world, what it means is that lament for the Christian, lament is not something we just do from time to time. It's actually a constant position of our hearts. It is. We're always seeing things that they're not quite how they should be, and we're walking this tension of praise and lament. Here's some real-life examples maybe you can relate to from your own life. Being treated unfairly in the workplace. Being overlooked in the workplace. A lack of opportunities and financial resources. uh, Being betrayed in a relationship. Marital issues. Disappointment with children. People telling lies about you, speaking evil of you sickness, and death. You know, as a church, we've, we had a lot of lament last year. You know, last year, if, if you're new and you don't, don't know me, last year I buried my father and my younger brother. So I had this deep season of grief and lament that we're really still walking through in a lot of ways. I have a, a little girl who has a disability that prevents her and may always prevent her from walking. And those are sort of things that we lament because it's not what you dreamed. It's not what you thought. It's not how you thought it would be. But at the same time, we can praise But this morning, we really want to look at lament. Michael Card, the famous singer-songwriter, said that we lament because we were created to live with God in a garden, but we wake up every morning in a desert, the desert of a fallen world. Now, he's making it all new, so we have that hope, and we're going to talk more about that at the end. But let's let's not dodge the fact that we're in the desert right now. And what I've noticed is that sometimes in the Christian community, there's a... um, collective distrust of lament. There's sort of this attitude of, shouldn't we just grin and bear it? I mean, isn't it just kind of put a smile on your face? Or when there actually is real grief and a real reason to grieve, sometimes the Christian community says, yes, take the time to grieve, but like, come on, like, get through your grief as quickly as possible so you can get back to being a brave Christian, a strong Christian, a real, a real Christian. In 2012, somebody did some research into the top 100 songs that were sung in churches like ours, and they studied the lyrics of the top 100 songs according to CCLI, and out of those 100 songs, only five of them had any sort of lyrics that would, that would categorize themselves as lament. We just don't do it very well. The truth is, is in the American church, we don't have this overriding sense of lament because we're very comfortable. There are parts of God's church around the world where lament is very familiar to them all of the time. You know, so here we look at a hundred songs we sing, only five of them say anything about lament, but when you read the Psalms, you know that when you categorize the Psalms, whether it's wisdom Psalms, Psalms of praise, Psalms of thanksgiving, that lament is far and away the, the biggest quantity of Psalms. And so we have this discrepancy in the church. And you know what? In the broader culture, even outside of the church, I don't know that it's any better because instead of biblical lament, uh, here's what we tend to do outside of the church. We tend to bury it, right? Bottle it up, keep it inside of you, which is not healthy. We try to escape from what we're feeling by turning to things that help us forget. Or, or we release it in hurtful, destructive ways. And so this thing about lament is it's always going to be a part of our lives. We're, here's what I'm trying to say. You and I are always going to have reasons to lament. The question is, do we know how to lament? Do we know how to do it in a helpful, biblical way that isn't hurtful and destructive to the people around us and to our own souls? And so this morning... 
as we read through this psalm, we want to deal with this, and we want to talk about what happens when we lament. And three things we're going to learn this morning about what happens when we lament. Number one, when we lament, we are being honest about how we feel. Honest about how we feel. I read it, verse one, let me read it to you one more time. This is a pretty honest, right? The, psalms, the psalmist writes, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of troubles? Now, we don't sing lyrics like that on Sunday morning. It wouldn't exactly warm the heart. Uh, but some of you walk in here feeling that way. And some of us feel that way Monday through Saturday. God, where are you and what are you doing? So here's what's beautiful about the laments, uh, the Psalms of lament, is that they help us know what should we do with our doubts and our questions. And the first things that they say is don't stifle them. Don't hold them in. See, God already knows your doubts and questions. You might as well just verbalize them. You might as well just get them out. You might as well just lift them up. You might as well ask them. And so what do we do with our doubts and our questions? Well, the lament invites us to be honest or honesty over bravery. Sometimes we think, well, we just need to be brave, stiff upper lip. And the psalmist, it's honesty over bravery. Not that those are opposite things, but that sometimes we're brave, but we're not being honest. Lament calls for the admission of weakness over shows of strength. Instead of trying to impress people with how strong we are, we admit our own weaknesses. Lament calls for embracing tension and mystery instead of accepting and offering other people simple, trite, cheap answers for what's going on in the world and in their lives. Lament calls us to be fully aware of our pain instead of escaping it and ignoring reality. And lament calls us to run to God, capital G, God, instead of running to lesser gods. Because the truth is, is everybody will run somewhere with their pain, with their suffering, with their questions, with their sorrows. But lament says you can run to God. He can handle it. You know, God can handle your questions. He can take your anger. He can take your frustration. He's okay. He can, he can handle it. And we see this, of course, as you might expect, modeled in the life of Jesus. In fact, Jesus, one of the ways he's prophesied about in the book of Isaiah 53, chapter 53, verse 3, is that he's a man of sorrows. And he's acquainted with not just grief, but the scriptures say the deepest grief. Jesus knew how to lament. We see him in the gospels stand and look over Jerusalem and his heart breaks. And he weeps over the city of Jerusalem, lamenting. When his cousin, John the Baptist, is killed, Jesus immediately pulls aside, goes away to a quiet place so he can be alone, so he can grieve. And then there's a really familiar story in John chapter 11 where Jesus is going to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. But what's really beautiful is that even knowing what he's going to do, he still laments. It still says, John eleven thirty five, 35, shortest verse in scripture, everyone's favorite memory verse, Jesus wept. He laments. And Michael Card in his book, A Sacred Sorrow, says this, Jesus understood that lament was the only true response of faith to the brokenness and fallenness of this world. It provides the only trustworthy bridge to God across the deep seismic quaking of our lives. Lament. So how does lament serve us, and how does lament strengthen us? The practice of lament, or I would even call it the spiritual discipline of lament. How does it serve us, and how does it strengthen us? I wrote down 10 reasons. I'm going to be really quick. I just want to share these with you. Number one, lament prevents us from putting our hopes in what's temporal. Lament is a constant reminder, this is not all there is. 
This is, this is just a shadow of what's to come. And don't drive your roots deep here. And don't put your hopes here. Yes, serve here, steward things well, work for the good of the city. But when you bury your hopes in something that's temporary, they're easily gone tomorrow. So lament is this sort of constant positioning of our hearts of saying, I, I can't put my hopes in this because I see it for what it is. Number two, lament keeps our need for personal life change right in front of us all the time because we don't just lament the things that are happening around us. Sometimes we have to lament the things that are happening within us. Lament our own sin and our own brokenness. Number three, lament helps us be in touch with the pain of others. It makes us empathetic. When we lament and when we are sorrowful and when we grieve, it helps us to grieve with others. Number four, lament, this is important, lament gives us a tool by which we can pray our fears and pray our tears. Pray our fears and pray our tears. Eugene Peterson, he said this, 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 this little sentence has haunted me all week as I've been studying for this message. He said, our habit is to talk about God and not to him. Our habit, and I think this is probably as big of a pitfall for pastors as anybody, our habit is to talk about God and not to him. We love discussing God, but the Psalms, one of the ways that the Psalms help us is they resist these sort of discussions. Because the Psalms were provided to the Hebrews, not just to teach them about God. These people knew God, I mean, through the teaching of the law and the Torah, but it was to train them in how to respond to God. So we don't, here's what Eugene Peterson says, and I think, he's, I think he's right. We don't learn the Psalms until we are praying the Psalms. And if we're going to pray the Psalms, it means we're going to be praying these laments, and we're going to be praying our tears and our fears. Okay, number five, lament helps us because with lament, we lift our pain to God instead of burying our pain within ourselves. Number six, in lament, we face our questions. We, we face our sorrow instead of hiding from those things. Number seven, in lament, this is important, we direct our emotions instead of allowing our emotions to direct us. We sort of say, the, this is how I feel. We, we name the emotion. This is the emotion I have, and then we direct it towards God. And if we don't do that through the spiritual discipline of lament, those emotions will direct you. They'll control you. Number eight, when we lament, we're giving our own voice to our sorrow instead of letting other people be our voice. And, and a lot of times this happens is we begin to believe uh, maybe the world's perspective on what to do with grief and pain and sorrow because we're not giving our own voice to our sorrow. And so we're just letting somebody else become that voice for us, whether it's the music that we listen to or, or the, 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 think, the teachings that we listen to. Number nine, in lament, we say what we feel and not what we're supposed to feel. We'd be a lot better off if we just were honest about how we actually feel instead of how we think as Christians, good Christians, we're supposed to feel. We have these conversations. You probably had them this morning in the church. How you doing? Doing great. Doing amazing. Really? All the time? Every Sunday? Every week? Tell me your secret, right? But I get it because who wants to be that person who like, because you think in that, in that conversation, nobody really wants to know. You don't really want me to be like, it's pretty terrible. You got 20 minutes. Like, no, this is, that's like a lot of us, if we're honest, that's our nightmare. Like, we're happy with just the, I'm doing great. I'm doing good. But lament says, no, 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 don't, don't talk how you think you're supposed to talk because you're in a certain building. Like, be honest. And then number 10, in lament, we embrace the tension of no easy answers. And sometimes it's not just no easy answers, it's no answers. And we just embrace it. There's just no answer. And we see, when we read through the rest of the psalm, you're going to see that even when the psalmist's heart begins to turn back to God, he still doesn't have the answers. God does not answer 
these questions in verse 1, but his heart still begins to turn back because he's embracing the tension. Now, a few things that happen if we're not honest and if we don't lament. We will internalize what needs to be expressed. We will pretend we are okay when we are not. Instead of lamenting to God, we will complain to each other. We will attack those who we think are causing our pain, and we will try to bring about our own justice because we don't know that God is ultimately the source of justice. And so we'll try to take it into our own hands. And Timothy Keller says that the Psalms, in a sense, give you the permission to pour out your complaints in a way that we might think is inappropriate if they weren't already there in the scriptures, right? We read the Psalms, we're like, ah, is that okay to say? Like, uh, is that, why is that in there? And the Psalms give us this permission to say, you can say that, you might think it's inappropriate, except, hold on, it's right there in the scriptures. And so, a couple quick application questions for you before we go to the next point. What do do I do with what I feel? When when I'm in sorrow, when I'm in grief, and we're not even talking about great tragedy or death of a, a loved one or anything. It's just like when things aren't right, when you look around the world and you just say, that's not right, that's unjust. Or when you are experiencing deep disappointment relationally or professionally, what do you do with that? Where do you go with that? And then ask yourself this question. Do I know, have I developed the habit, do I know how to pray my tears to God? and pray my fears to God, and not just as a last-ditch option, but as a way of life. And then here's a broader application for us as a church. How can we as a church here at Trinity Assembly provide space for people who are struggling with doubt, anxiety, angst, and frustration with God? How do we provide space for people to come in with really big questions, really important questions, and really some serious emotions as it relates to God and what he's doing in their lives. We have to create that sort of space. So when we lament, we are honest about how we feel. Secondly, when we lament, we are being honest about what we see, about what we see. I want to read to you a big chunk of this psalm now, beginning in verse 2. So follow with me. It'll be on the screens. Some of this is in your notes. Uh, Verse 2 through 11, I'm reading to you from the ESV. So now the psalmist asks his question, God, where are you? Why are you far away? And now he begins to describe what he sees, and what he sees is wickedness. Verse 2, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of sight, or out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. And then he seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. And he says in his heart, God has forgotten He has hidden his face, and he will never see it. The psalmist is being honest about what he sees. And the psalmist here sees wickedness and wicked people everywhere. And we have to pause for just a moment to realize this passage I just read, it gives us some understanding of what are the sort of things we should be lamenting over. Because sometimes I think when life is easy, we lament over silly, stupid stuff. 
We lament over somebody not saying hi to us this morning. We lament over, oh, it's Christmas time at Destiny and the parking lot is so full. And I got to park over here and I got to take a shuttle to the mall. Where are you, God? What are you doing? You know, we, we, we tend to like, because our lives are generally speaking sort of comfortable, uh, we find things to lament over that really, biblically, that's not what we lament over. That's stuff we get over, right? That's stuff that we just mature through. That's stuff that we just realize, come on, that's a first world complaint. Like, that's not the sort of stuff we need to bring to God with deep sorrow and anguish. And so this passage says, here are the things that should break our hearts. Here are the things that should grieve us, and here's the things that we should lament over. And what we see here is this wicked. Now, what do we learn of wickedness in this passage? What do we learn of the evil? We learn five things. Number one, the wicked are always taking advantage of the powerless. Did you notice that theme in that text? They're, they're, they're lurking and waiting for the poor. It said early in the text that the, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. And then later it says that they hide in ambush for the poor. So they, they got it coming from both ways. They're being chased and they're being chased into traps. And so anytime you see anybody in government, in society, in leadership, in your community who is taking advantage of the disadvantaged, who is not giving voice to those who don't have voice, who is um, overlooking the marginalized and the outsiders in our communities, whatever reason they are where they are, whenever we see that, something should stir in the heart of a follower of Jesus to say, it's not right. It's not just. That's not what power is for. Power is not given to be abused. Power is not given to abuse people or to take advantage of people who can't afford uh, whatever they would need to have a voice. You understand what I'm saying? And this is a big issue right now in our nation and in our world. Who's giving a voice to those who don't have voices? I know that these are complicated, complex, nuanced, politically charged conversations, and I'm not interested in having one of those this morning. But I am interested in saying, clearly in Scripture, the wicked take advantage of the powerless, and it should grieve us, and we should lament. Number two, the wicked have a disregard for God. They got no place for him, no time for him, no purpose for him. They can't see any value in him. Number three, in this text, did you notice that the wicked have a tremendous overconfidence in themselves? Like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm good forever. There's one particular phrase where they say, I shall not be moved. Imagine the arrogance of a finite human being saying that they shall not be moved when only God is the unmovable one. And a human being standing up, puffing out his or her chest saying, I can't be moved. I'm so secure. I have so many advantages. I have so much wealth. I have so many resources. I have so much education. I shall not be moved. And then he goes and says, throughout all the generations, I shall not meet adversity, which simply means nothing will ever defeat me. Nothing will ever bring me down. This is the overconfidence of the wicked. So when you see people in leadership or in your life who display constant arrogance, overconfidence, an unwillingness to submit themselves to other people, it's wicked. It's evil. And these are the sort of things that should cause us to lament. Number four, the wicked, what we learn here is that their words and their actions always uh, align with their heart. This is one of the most important things we have to learn about wickedness here, is that it always starts in your heart. It said earlier in the passage, uh, verse three, the wicked boast of the desires of his soul. And that idea, that desire of your soul, is a, it's a controlling uh, um, need. It's a 
controlling want. It's a controlling affection. And that's where all evil begins, is our hearts set our deepest affections and our, our strongest attention on something other than God. And we say, this is what I need above all other things, and i got to have it. So if what I need above all other things is power, then it's going to cause me to do some of the things in this text. If what I need above all other things is control, then it's going to cause me to see people as pawns that I can use for my own personal purposes. If what I really need is respect, then I'm actually going to live my life in such a way that I am respected by certain people, but not for the right reasons, just because I need to feed my soul's greatest desire for respect. And so the psalmist is saying, evil is in the heart before it's ever in the hand. It just is. And evil hearts actually sometimes lead to good deeds, but it's still the wrong motivation in the heart. You can have an out-of-control desire in your heart that actually leads you to be very moral, even very religious, but you're doing it because what your heart really desires is control over your own salvation. And so you think, if I do all the good things, then God owes me, and I'm in control of my salvation because I've got my act together. And it's a works-righteousness approach. And so we need to understand this about evil wickedness. It starts in the heart. And the last thing we learn in this text about wickedness is this. It's intentional. Did you hear that language in there? They're making plans. They're not falling into sin. It's not like, oops. They, they're setting up traps. They're lurking. They're waiting. And there is a sort of wickedness, evilness, and sin that we encounter in our lives that we realize it's, it's, it's a, maybe a lack of wisdom, maybe a lack of integrity, Maybe, maybe a lack of consistency, and that sin grieves God's heart, and we need to be repentant of it. But this sin being described here, this is not lack of integrity, lack of consistency, a little slip up here and there. This is an intentional commitment to evil and to use other people. So, okay, we get this very sort of um, stark picture of what wickedness looks like. What do we do with it? Here's what we don't do with it. We don't start putting people over there. Oh, well described, Pastor David. Thanks for making that clear for me. Now, I got some names to drop in there. This person, this politician, this family member, they belong over there because they're wicked and I'm over here. Well, that would really be a mishandling of why this psalm was given us. What do we do with the description of the wickedness? How does it help us be honest about what we see? The first thing we do is this. We look inward first and repeatedly over and over. We look at this and we say, God, in what ways am I disregarding you? You know what? Let me just give you one sort of like, um, doesn't seem like a serious sin maybe, but it's a disregard for God. Prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. A lack of reading scripture. You know what that is? That's not just you not sort of being a good Christian. That's a disregard for God. That's a, I got it. I'm good. I don't need you right now, and I don't need your word right now. I'm all set. That's a disregard for God. And so we need to look at these sort of things. How am I overconfident in myself at times? How do I sometimes use the little power that I do have to exploit people? I was listening to a podcast recently where somebody was talking about the abuse of power, and they said, what are some of the early indicators that somebody's going to be abusive of their power in terrible ways? That's nice to know, right? Catch it early. And they said something that I hated. And they basically said, um, one of the things that's an early indicator that you're going to abuse your power terribly eventually is just the way you engage with people in conversation, how present you are with them. If you're having a conversation with somebody and they're texting while they're talking to you, that's an early indicator they're, that, that, that they're going to abuse power eventually because they're basically saying, my needs right now are superior to being present with you. 
and what you need from me. Or talking to somebody who's looking around the room the whole time looking for their next conversation to jump into or something more interesting, the opportunist, you know? So we need to look inwardly and we need to look inwardly first and repeatedly. Number two, we need to understand that there's a why behind every what. I already talked about that. There's a, there's a why, there's a, there's a heart issue behind every uh, behavioral issue. And the other thing, when we look at this, we realize when it comes to evilness and wickedness and sin, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that's here in this text is here in our country, in our city, in our community, in our homes, in our own lives, in our hearts. So we need to be honest about what we see. So number one, honest about how we feel. Number two, honest about what we see. And then lastly, let's close with this. When we lament, we are honest about who we hope in, who we hope in. And here the psalm shifts, and it shifts first to a prayer. And I want to read to you beginning in verse 12. The psalmist now begins to pray. He says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand and forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? He's saying the wicked think they're never going to be held accountable for their actions. Verse 14, and this is where he begins to, build, he's where he begins to say, this is what I hope in. This is who I hope in. And the psalmist says, but you do see. You do see. And you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear, all these future tense things. Verse 18, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, to bring justice to them, so that man or humankind who is of the earth, may strike terror no more. Now, earlier I read to you something that Keller says about the Psalms. He said, the Psalms, in a sense, give you the permission to pour out your complaints in a way that we might find inappropriate if it wasn't already there in the Scriptures. But that's not the end of his quote. Here's the end of his quote. He says, but on the other hand, the Psalms demand that you bow in the end to the sovereignty of God in a way that modern culture wouldn't lead you to believe. What we see is that when we go through lament, and I'm not sure that we can get to the third step of truly putting our hope in God until we've gone through the first two steps of being honest about how we feel, being honest about what we see, and now we have the opportunity in this sort of lifestyle of honesty to say, here's who I hope in. And In this text, there are a few key phrases. He says, God, it feels like you're far away, but I I have hope in this. You do see. You see everything. God sees everything. And he says, you take note. Now, one of the things that's interesting about the way the psalmist writes the end of this um, Psalm 10 is that he kind of um, goes between, did you notice this? He's switching his verb tenses. He kind of goes between present tense. He even mixes in a past tense at one point. He says, you've been a helper to the fatherless. But then ultimately he ends up more in the future tense. Here's the things that you will do. And that's part of the lament is we say, God, here's what I know you are currently doing right now. I know that you see everything. I know that you take note. And I also know that someday you will future tense, 
make it right. And so part of lamenting is saying, God, you act now and you will act someday. And I'm okay with the fact that when you get to decide when you act in which way, right? And that's part of, of sort of surrendering to the sovereignty of God. God, you see it all and you're going to deal with it all. It's not my decision. It's not in my control as to when you deal with it and how you deal with it. It's future tense, that you will strengthen and you will incline your ear. And then it said in verse 15, you break the arm. And that's a metaphor. That idea of break the arm is, means simply this. You're gonna take all the power away from people who think they have power. Someday all their power will be taken away. And then one of the beautiful things about this psalm, and I'm gonna ask Bethany to come forward and join me up here on the piano. At the end, we get this sort of, you gotta, you gotta be looking for it, but there's this idea of there's the hope of Jesus here. Because he talks about um, the idea that, in verse 16, he says, the Lord is king forever and ever. And this is like, this phrase, king forever and ever, it would have resonated with the Israelites because that's what they wanted. They wanted a king, a good king. They never really got one, but they wanted a good king who would reign forever and ever, whose house would reign forever and whose name would remain forever, and none of them could do it. Or it seemed like none of them were doing it as they were struggling and, and splitting as a kingdom and, and getting dragged off into exile by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then even returning and it's nothing like it used to be and wondering, boy, the line, the lineage, it's gone, it's done. There's no king forever. But then there is a descendant of David who sits on the throne to be king forever and of course is Jesus. Jesus is the king forever. Then the nations won't last forever. The injustices won't last forever. The suffering won't last forever. But Jesus will last forever, and his kingdom will reign forever. The psalmist says, you will call wickedness to account until someday there's no wickedness. Can you imagine what that day is going to be like? And before you think first about what would it be like for there, be, for there to be no wickedness in the world around me, take a minute and reflect upon what will you be like when there's no wickedness in you? What, what will you be like when there's no insecurities no selfishness, the struggle. It's coming. It's happening. And that's the hope that we have, the hope that there will be a day where there is no wickedness. And the psalm ends with this. There's a day coming where humankind will strike terror no more. And the terror, and we can open up the, you can go online and read the articles, open up the newspaper if you still read a newspaper. And you can see headline to headline, humankind is striking terror all over the world. But there's a day coming when there will be no more terror. And all the power will be rightly returned to the true king, the good king, who will reign forever. Now, how is this possible? It's possible because Jesus didn't just say, hey, here's how you should lament. He experienced our lament too. His tears that he shed in the garden the night before, the night on which he was betrayed, hanging on the cross, lamenting, asking the same question that we all ask, the simple question of why? Why, God? And he laments and he dies the death that we should have died. And he rises from the dead to give us hope. And this is the last thing I kind of want to just share with you this thought is this, that Jesus suffered greatly, more than any of us will ever understand. But Jesus suffered not so that you and I wouldn't suffer. There are, there are teachings out there like that. But that's not scripture. Jesus suffered not so that we wouldn't suffer, but so that in our suffering, we might become like him. And so that our suffering would not be without meaning and that our suffering would not be without end. Which means the suffering in my life, the sorrow in your life, the grief, the laments, it's not wasted and it's not forever. It's not the last chapter. 
Jesus suffered not so that we would not suffer, so that in our suffering we might become like him, and so that in our suffering we would know our suffering is not without meaning and it's not without end. I want to read this poem to you that I read, I found this week in my studies that I thought was so powerful. We'll have it for you on the screen. Edward Shalito says this, The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is the bomb? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we know thy grace. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Jesus is able to come to us in our laments, in our grief, in our sorrow, because he's the wounded healer. He's the wounded God. He's the man God who knows everything that we experience, who is tempted in every way that we are tempted, who suffered from everything that we will suffer. But he overcame so that we could have hope even in our lament. Let's pray together this morning.